0: Good morning to everyone. It is certainly good to be here and so thankful to see the presence of everybody that's able to be with us this morning. What we're going to discuss today are the very final hours before Jesus' crucifixion and His death. And sadly, those hours had to be some of the worst hours that anyone has ever lived. In fact, I'm sure they are the worst hours that any human being has ever lived, especially given the purity and the holiness and the sinlessness Of Jesus, And the reason is because those final hours are really marked by two things, and that is betrayals and trials. Now the greatest trial, I think, took place in the garden. And we're going to talk about what took place in the garden for a little bit this morning. But following that were trials before the Jews and trials before the Romans. And throughout all of these, Jesus was betrayed and forsaken again and again. But I hope that as we look at this... We're going to see the story, and I hope it fills us with a greater appreciation for our Lord, for what He has done for us, and I hope that it encourages us to have a greater commitment and a greater zeal to being faithful to Him who has been so faithful to us, to the one who, though He was forsaken by essentially everyone, went through with the plan that brought about His own death so that He could bring us. Eternal life. Well, like I said, where we ended last time, Jesus had been going through what we call the final discourse with His disciples. He had observed the final supper or the last supper in that upper room. And Matthew, we'll just read from Matthew 26, verse 30, and then verse 36. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. John tells us that Jesus specifically crosses the brook Kedron. And so what he does is, this is an estimation of where the upper room may have been. Who knows if that's exactly where it was. But Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem proper with his disciples for the final meal. And at some point after the supper, they leave and they actually exit the city proper. And now the city of Jerusalem is kind of on a hill, a mountain. And there's this valley that's the Kidron Valley. And this mountain just to the east is the Mount of Olives. And Jesus has spent quite a bit of time there. The Gospels tell us that he went there frequently. In fact, Judas, we're told, knew that this would be a place where Jesus would likely be. He was familiar (coughs) with this place as well. And so after the Passover meal, Jesus makes his way outside of the city. They cross this Kidron brook. (coughs) Excuse me. And they make their way up to a specific place on the Mount of Olives, which is the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. This is a a Mount of Olives. There were many olive vineyards. And there was apparently a garden or oil press here that Jesus was allowed to come to because He went there frequently. And Jesus travels to this place. Now something just kind of interesting that may only be a coincidence, but I find it hard to believe that things like this are coincidence. Jesus is, of course, the son of David. And he is the new David who is to inherit the promised throne that God has promised in the Old Testament. And there are some similarities here between Jesus and David. I hadn't read this or noticed this before until I was doing this recent study. But when David, if you remember when David's son Absalom tried to depose him and wrest control of the kingdom, we're told specifically in 2 Samuel that David left Jerusalem, that he crossed over the brook Kedron... And that he went and wept and prayed on the Mount of Olives. Interestingly enough, to just compound it further, he was betrayed by a man who was supposed to be his friend. That man's name was Ahithophel. And that man, after some time, hanged himself. You know, there's, from what I've read, there's only two individuals in the Bible who are said to have hanged themselves. That's Ahithophel and, of course, Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. And so I don't think that these are just allegorical events. I think they took place. But I think by the divine hand of God, we see this in motion. And we see that Jesus is doing all that is necessary to truly take up the throne that He has been promised. To take up the throne of David. Not just the throne of Israel, but the throne that is His as the King of Kings. And so He comes to the Mount of Olives and He leaves most of the disciples. But we're told that He takes with Him Peter and James and John... "...deeper into the garden." And we read this in Matthew 26, verse 37 through 38, and also Mark 14. They're very similar, but there's a few different words here. It says, "...taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me." Now Mark's is almost identical, but he says, "...he took with him Peter and James and John, and to be greatly distressed and troubled." What we have there, we have three different words between Matthew and Mark's account that describe the trouble and the sorrow that Jesus was experiencing. The idea of sorrowful is to cause severe, not just some kind of pain or a little bit of sadness, but severe mental or emotional distress. Jesus, It says that He is troubled. That means to be depressed, dejected, and full of anguish. And He is greatly distressed. That word means to be amazed or astonished, or awestruck. When Jesus tells the disciples, tells Peter and James and John, who He's brought to the deeper part of the Garden of Gethsemane, that He is sorrowful, He's not saying He's just a little bit sad. He's not saying He's a little bit concerned. He's not looking forward to the cross with some mild amount of discomfort. Jesus is in as much sorrow and agony and anguish as you and I have ever felt. And I know that there are people here who have felt great deals of anguish and agony. But I assure you, Jesus knows what agony feels like. He says that He is sorrowful even unto death. And I don't think He is just exaggerating Jesus, what we, is what we might call at His wit's end almost, from sorrow and from agony. Now we might ask ourselves, why is Jesus so sorrowful? This doesn't seem like Jesus, if we're honest. Jesus has been so brave, so stoic. He's been the one that's been encouraging and exhorting the disciples during the previous hours, promising the helper, promising why he must go away. And now all of a sudden, when Jesus gets to the garden, Jesus is in anguish. It's like a different person almost. And we have to ask, why? Is Jesus a coward? Is Jesus weak? Well, of course not. And absolutely not. First, we have to recognize Jesus knows He is facing unimaginable physical pain. Jesus knows the type of death He is going to die, and He knows what goes into that. Jesus knows that He is about to go through a very intense and agonizing physical ordeal. But I honestly don't think that is the main thing that sorrows Jesus. I think what is bothering Jesus is that He is about to become the sin sacrifice for all humanity. Jesus is about to suffer God's wrath for man's sins. In fact, when He prays, He's going to pray that the cup may pass from Him. Now, it's very likely that that cup refers to God's wrath. In the Old Testament, again and again and again, God's wrath is referred to as a cup. And the reason Jesus is going to the cross is not because He deserves it, not because He should. He is going to the cross to suffer God's wrath towards sinners. God's wrath towards all sinners. Now, I can't even explain that, to be honest. I can't put that into words. I think the best way for you and I to try to understand how terrible that must be is to sit back and look at Jesus in the garden. To look at Jesus admitting to Peter and James and John that he needs their prayers because he is sorrowful unto death. Seeing that God saw that it was necessary to send an angel to comfort Jesus, as Luke tells us. Seeing as Luke also tells us that his sweat became like great drops of blood. That's an actual medical condition, most commentators think, called hematosis, where the capillaries in the forehead literally rupture from the stress that somebody's under. Now, you may be under an amount of stress. Everyone faces an amount of stress. And sometimes we talk about how stressed we are. And I'm not making light of your stress, but I have never known of somebody that was so stressed out and in such anguish and sorrow that the capillaries in their head literally began to rupture, intermingling their sweat with blood. And that's the agony that Jesus is in. And further, maybe sometimes we just overlook this fact. Jesus is, after all, the eternal Word of God incarnated. Jesus is an eternal being temporarily clothed in human flesh, but an eternal being who is for the first time about to taste death. You and I fear death, and we're all familiar with it. We know people have died. We know we're going to die. We hear about it and see it. Jesus is God eternal made flesh. Death is the exact opposite of His nature. And yet He is about to go and experience it. So yes, Jesus is greatly troubled and sorrowful. And thus, He tells the, James and John and Peter, He says, stay here and watch with me. Now some commentators think that Jesus is just telling them to keep watch while He goes and prays. But Jesus says, watch with me. Now that word watch means to stay awake, be vigilant. Ironically, the very thing that the disciples couldn't do. Over and over again, three times Jesus is going to go and pray and come back, and every time He's going to find them sleepy. Now, before we get too judgmental, it had been an exhausting week. It had been a hard week. It had been a difficult night listening to some of the things Jesus had to say. We can't hardly fault Peter and James and John for being exhausted. But that's just the thing. They are physically weak, and that is the time that we need to be spiritually alert. So Jesus exhorts them to watch with Him. I think that's an exhortation to pray both with and for Him and for themselves. They are about to face hardship and temptation. They are facing spiritual warfare, and they need to be prepared. And so Jesus goes off, I think Luke tells us, a stones throw away after leaving Peter and James and John, and He begins to pray. And the primary thrust of this prayer is, let this cup pass from me. Now it's interesting to me that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who record this prayer, record it slightly differently. In Matthew's version, Jesus says, if it is possible. In Mark's account, he says, all things are possible for you. And in Luke's account, Jesus says, if you are willing. This is no contradiction. I believe that it was probably all of these things that were said. We're told that Jesus came back after about an hour. Now when you read these verses (coughs) about Jesus' prayer, they're fairly short. But Jesus spent somewhere around an hour praying. Probably all of these things have been said by Jesus during this prayer. And what He is getting at, what we see, is Jesus is looking for any way, any possibility (coughs) of being delivered, from this terrible fate. Now again we may ask ourselves, why is Jesus praying this way? Why is Jesus asking for this cup to pass? Prophecies foretold he's going to die. He himself has said that he must die. So why is he praying this? Well the fact that it's been prophesied, the fact that he's even foretold it does not mean that actually facing the wrath of God is going to be any easier. And in short, Jesus is praying this because He doesn't want to go forward. Because He does not want to face the wrath of God. That's not because He's weak. (coughs) Excuse me. It's not because He's cowardly. But He doesn't want to face the wrath of God. He's never been separated from God. He's never been apart from God. He's never done anything to deserve the wrath of God. And yet he's going to have to suffer it. I want to say this. I believe that Jesus knew his suffering would be temporary. Jesus, just as he foretold that he would die, also foretold that he would rise again. Jesus knew that suffering the wrath of God would be momentary for him. And then he would be restored and exalted And look at the anguish it caused him. Look at the pain and the fear that it brought to Jesus. Now if that's the case for Jesus, how much more fearful do you think you and I ought to be of suffering the wrath of God for eternity? We go about our lives as though there's no threat, as though there's no danger, As though if something were to go wrong and we were to be lost, it really wouldn't be that big of a deal. People put off obeying the gospel. People presume upon the grace of God with no fear. People joke about hell. How dare we? And how dare you if that's your attitude? Look at the picture of Jesus in the garden when facing the wrath of God momentarily. And rethink our, we should rethink our attitude when we do so about our attitudes concerning eternity. But of this prayer, something that we must make note of is while Jesus made this request, everything was in accordance with the Father's will. Not as I will, but as you will. While Jesus passionately makes His plea, He never prays apart from the Father's will. He doesn't want to go forward. But there's a difference in what we want and what we will do. Did Jesus want to go suffer the wrath of God? No. But was Jesus going to obey God and His will and His plan? Absolutely. And so when the answer was clearly no, there is no other way. Jesus was resolved to move forward as He always had been. Now, we come to the disciples. Matthew 26, verses 40 through 41 says, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And He said to Peter, So, could you not watch with Me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And of course, this happens again and again. Now, Jesus is speaking to all three of the disciples, but he's especially narrow, uh, calls out Peter, who is the one who had so boisterously claimed He would never forsake Jesus. And yet, he can't even stay awake with Jesus. But notice, Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. We can't get off on a side note here uh, for too long. But it is worth noting that the key purpose of prayer, one of the key purposes, is overcoming temptation. One thing about Peter, sometimes we don't give him the credit that's due. Peter was ready to make good on his promise. Peter said he would die with Christ before he left him. And later on when the mob comes and they're getting ready to seize Jesus, it, it's Peter who pulls out his sword when they're outnumbered greatly and is willing to fight. He was making good on his promise. Here's the problem. He was physically and carnally prepared, but he wasn't spiritually prepared. But Jesus says the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to recognize our own weakness And always be vigilant, be on guard against our adversary, spending time in prayer that we may not be tempted and that we may not succumb to temptation when it comes. Let's speak about the arrest for just a moment. And I'm just going to have to kind of cobble this together. We don't have time to go and read all the passages. And I'm trying to harmonize really all four accounts. And so we're going to go through this fairly quickly. Jesus tells them the third time He comes back and they're asleep. He says, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. John tells us that Judas knew Gethsemane and that was where Jesus would be. And he had arranged a signal according to Matthew and Mark so that the soldiers would know who Jesus was. Now we have to remember this is in the dark of midnight. So they're going to a place and although they have torches, it would be very difficult and hard to see. And so Judas knows he'll be able to pick out Jesus. And he gives a signal so that they grab the right man. he says, the one whom I go up and kiss, that's the one that you need to arrest. And so the group arrives... But what happens is as they get there, and Jesus is finishing up with His prayer, Jesus actually takes the first step. Jesus is the one who begins the interaction. In John 18, we'll go ahead and read verses 4 through 6. It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am He. Judas, who betrayed Him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now this is... Unique to John's Gospel. John's the only one that tells us about this event. I think it happened before the kiss and the subsequent events that we're getting ready to see. But when the crowd, when the mob comes forward, Jesus comes out. And He addresses them. He says, who are you here for? And they say, we're here for Jesus of Nazareth. Judas hasn't even got to do his bit yet. They just answer. And Jesus says, now the English Standard Version says, I am He. But the ESV also has a footnote that that could be translated as, I am. And the Greek phrase there is the same that can be found in other places that refers to God's statement of divinity, I am. It brings back ideas of Exodus. And when God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, I am, has sent you. And Jesus has used this phrase on other occasions, times at which people were so angry they were ready to stone him for saying such things. Now, I don't know why the crowd falls back. When Jesus says, I am, or I am He, it may have been a statement of His divinity. And John doesn't explain. He doesn't explain if this was some supernatural event, and the power of Jesus' divine words made these men stumble back. He doesn't say if maybe these people are a little bit wary. They know who Jesus is. They've heard of His miracles. They've seen His miracles. And when this man comes out and makes this statement, maybe they step back in fear, worried about what Jesus is going to do. You have to assume at least some of those there were a little bit nervous about going and apprehending a man who could perform miracles. Maybe it was just some natural explanation, such as when Jesus stepped forward, they stepped back and stumbled over themselves. I've read that. The truth is, we don't know. I've heard some people say it couldn't have been anything supernatural, Because how could they go on and arrest Jesus in the first place? But the truth is, if that is the case, it's just one of many. In just a few moments, Jesus is going to heal the ear miraculously of a man whose ear has been cut off. They're still going to arrest Him. They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle of Jesus in His life, and they're still there to arrest Him. We're told that there were some of the Pharisees who even believed that He was the Messiah but wouldn't confess Him because they feared men. Well, see, Pilate has similar ideas. It's amazing how hard-hearted mankind can be. It's amazing that Jesus can step forth in potential power and men can still think that they can arrest Him. It's amazing that they can see His loving gesture of healing His enemies and still hate Him. It's amazing that He can come to give life and they want to take His. But again, we need to be careful as we point fingers because perhaps sometimes we are just as hard-hearted in our rebellion against the Lord. But Jesus asks again who it is that they seek and they say, Jesus of Nazareth, He says, I told you I am He, so if you seek Me, let these men go. I think it's at this time that Judas decides to go forward with this signal, even though at this point it's kind of pointless. Jesus has made himself known. But Judas still comes up, and Matthew tells us that Jesus asks him, he says, or Luke says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Even Jesus seems to be shocked that Judas is going through with this and doing this in this manner. Not only is he betraying Jesus, but he's doing so while feigning loyalty and love. But then Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. Now we might think Jesus is being friendly even up until the end, but that word friend can actually be a warning. In fact, in Matthew, it's used that way. In Matthew 20, verse 13, in the parable of the landowner who goes out and hires men throughout the day, and he pays them all the same. Well, the men that he hired first were disgruntled and angry with him. But the landowner, Matthew 20, verse 13, says, Friend, am I doing you any ro- or I am doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for denarius? In that sense, the man called him friend, but it was clearly a warning of, Look, you were treated fairly. Even more sobering is the wedding of the or the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22 in which the king comes out after all the attendees are there, and the king sees a man who's not in his wedding garments, and the king says, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And after that, commands the man to be bound and cast into outer darkness. I think that's the way Jesus is saying, Friend, do what you came to do. Judas had already had it in his heart to betray Jesus. Jesus tells him to go through with this, but mixed in is a word of warning and judgment. So at this time, the mob moves to seize Jesus, but Peter swings a sword and cuts off Malchus's ear. That's the high priest's servant, as we're told. But Jesus heals Malchus, according to Luke 22, verse 51. And in a small way, Jesus shows what He is really here for. He is offering healing for the very people who are after His life. He is giving His life, for his enemies, But at this point he also says to Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He also says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? According to John 18 verse 11. That's an important question. Again, I think Peter was acting sincerely. Peter's making good on his promise to die for the Lord. He's ready to fight for Jesus. He's doing something good. But Jesus had already told Peter multiple times that he had to die. And he also told Peter he'd be back. But Peter either hadn't listened or he didn't want to listen and he just didn't understand. And so he acts how he thinks is best. And that's how so many people act today. We act in what we think is best without listening to God's word, whether it be in salvation, in worship, in morality, in whatever it may be. And we think we're doing good. And what we're actually doing is we're rebelling against the plan of God. Peter was acting against God's designs by trying to keep Jesus from being crucified. thought he was doing good, but he was actually intervening. Jesus also said, Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus is making a very serious point. These men are not taking Jesus by force. He's going willingly. For those of you that like math, you've probably already done this. A legion would be full of 6,000 soldiers. So when Jesus references 12 legions, more than 12 legions actually, 12 legions would be 72,000 angels. Now if you remember a story from Isaiah chapter 37 you remember that there, one angel, one angel, killed 185,000 men. So when you talk about 72,000 angels, that's a killing capability of 13,320,000,000 people. Twice the size, the current population almost, of this world. Jesus says, I could right now call for my Father and get more than twelve legions of angels. And by the way, He didn't need to do that. This is the author, the creator of life. With a word. He created all existence. What do you think He could also do with the word? Calling the angels would simply be so that He didn't have to waste the fraction of a moment that it would take. Jesus is not being taken against His will. He is laying His life down. But there's also something else here that is terrifying to me. It is a terrifying reminder that there was another answer to Jesus' prayer. When Jesus prayed to the Father, there was another answer. He didn't have to die. Jesus indicates that if He requested from God, God would send the angels. So I think Jesus' prayer was, if there's any other way for salvation to be accomplished, then let's do that. That answer was a no. But Jesus says, if I ask my Father right now for the angels, they're coming. Jesus didn't owe the cross to you. And He didn't owe the cross to me. He was under no moral imperative to lay down His life. But doing so, of course, would damn all of humanity. And so we should be ever thankful for the Lord's restraint and for His love and His decision to do so from time gone by. Because He also says, how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled? While Jesus' decision is amazing, it's not a surprise. He and the Father had made the decision already that He would give His life for mankind. So at this point, Jesus addresses the others He points out their hypocrisy, and then he is seized and arrested. Now, he's going to go through six rounds of trials. Three Jewish trials and three Roman trials. He's going to appear before Annas, and then Caiaphas, and then the formal Sanhedrin, and then he'll be delivered over to Pilate, and then Herod, and then back to Pilate. So let's go through these, at least briefly. Now, first of all, there's the trial before Annas. Now, this man was not the actual high priest. He had served as high priest from A.D. 7 through A.D. 14, And in the Jewish system, he should have served for life. The high priest served for life. But the Romans would uh, take out and appoint new high priests. They kind of exercised control. But they left Annas alive, and in fact, it's clear that he had a great deal of pull with the Romans. He had a lot of political clout and influence, because history tells us that five of his sons and one of his sons-in-law served as high priests So obviously this man had all the perks and all the privileges of the power without actually having to even do the job in many ways. And it's his son-in-law Caiaphas who's the high priest during Jesus' trial. But because of this he has a lot of power and a lot of sway. And so they send Jesus off to Annas first. And this is also probably something to buy time for Caiaphas to round up some of his cronies and the false witnesses that will be involved in the second trial. And John 18 records what this, uh, this brief trial was, it tells us that he asked Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And it's a silly question. There had been nothing secret about Jesus' teaching or his disciples, and Jesus explains that. He explains that everything he had done, he'd done in the daylight and clearly. Well, the officer who's standing by finds that uh, rude, and so that officer strikes Jesus. And Jesus says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? The officer's actions are inexcusable and hypocritical. He hands out punishment when no wrong has occurred. The truth is, this first trial and punishment is just a microcosm of the hypocrisy and the injustice that will mark the remaining hours of what Jesus experiences from the hands of men. And so after this, he sent off to Caiaphas, which is recorded in some measure in all of the Gospels. Now Caiaphas, while Jesus has been with Annas, has been busy gathering a portion of the Sanhedrin, probably all those that are uh, with him and wanting to destroy Jesus, and gathering false witnesses. And they bring these false witnesses, and multiple false witnesses a uh, lie about Jesus. But the Gospels tell us they can't even get their testimony, false testimony, to agree I've made this point when we uh, were in our eldership studies. If you want to see a picture of what blameless really looks like, look at Jesus on trial. The idea of being blameless or above reproach means uh, without being able to be accused. Jesus had lived such a perfect life that even when people were making up lies about Him, they couldn't make anything stick. Nothing could be found that anyone would believe made him deserving of death. Well, finally, at one point, Caiaphas just asks him a direct question. He stands up in the midst and says, "'Have you no answer to make?' Well, Jesus didn't have an answer to make. The false accusations were so silly and absurd, they needed no answer. But he says, "'What is this these men testify against you?' Jesus remained silent made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, "'Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed?' And Jesus said, "'I am.' And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power." and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, first of all, Caiaphas is asking Jesus to incriminate himself. But Jesus is willing to do so because it's the truth. Caiaphas' question is pointless. Because if the way he asks it, if Jesus responds with truth, that is what makes Caiaphas mad. If Jesus would have said no and appeased Caiaphas, Jesus would have been lying. Jesus says, I am. And he makes some other statements that are clearly messianic in nature. And at this point, it says, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. By the way, another side note, Caiaphas, as he accuses Jesus of blasphemy, commits blasphemy. According to Leviticus 21 verse 10, the high priest was commanded to not tear his clothes. That's part of the law. That's directly from God. And here this man in some pious show is breaking the law of Moses while accusing Jesus of blasphemy. But none of the people there care. All they care is they think they have something they can accuse Jesus with. And so they deem Him worthy of death. And once deemed worthy of death, the abuse begins. We're told at this point that they begin to spit in Jesus' face. We're told at this point that they cover his eyes and would strike him and hit him. And they would even prophesy, who is it that struck you? And amazingly, we know that Jesus could have called out every single name that struck him. He knew, but he remained silent. But now, here's what I really want to say. If you're like me, this scene is disgusting and gut-wrenching. But are we any better? Or do we, spiritually speaking, spit in the Savior's face? Do we act against Him thinking He doesn't know, thinking He's going to overlook our secret sins and our betrayals? If so, we should heed the words of Hebrews 10, Verse 26 through 31, that reminds us that those who go on sinning are guilty of trampling underfoot the Son of God and have profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified. Those oh, should be sobering words for all of us indeed. Well, they hold Jesus for a while. And by the way, I don't obviously have time to talk about this. Maybe I'll do this in another sermon. But it's between this trial and the third that we have the infamous incident of Peter denying Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us that it's around this time that Jesus looked at Peter. As Peter's denying him, and the rooster crows, Peter remembers the Lord's prophecy, and he goes out and weeps bitterly. So Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He's been forsaken by the disciples. He's been made the subject of a terrible miscarriage of justice. He's been beaten. Now Peter has denied him. And then we have the final trial before Caiaphas. And that is really just a formal trial. They ask him the same questions. They do this because they have to make a formal decision after daybreak. So this is the formal sentencing of death. And then they send him off to Pilate because the Jews did not have the power of execution. Only Rome could execute prisoners. So they want Jesus dead. He's deserving of death in their eyes, but they have to send him to Pilate. Now there's a problem with this. They've accused Jesus of blasphemy, which according to them is worthy of death. No Roman governor or king or Caesar is going to execute someone for blasphemy. So instead, they bring him before Pilate and they say, well, he's misleading the nation, he's forbidding people to pay tribute or taxes to Caesar, and he's claiming to be a king. This right here shows you their false motives their lies and their hypocrisy, and that they have to change the accusation to get what they want. Even Pilate sees through them. He doesn't address the first two. Jesus, just days before, had very publicly told people to pay taxes to Caesar. So he doesn't even care about that one. The only one Pilate even sort of investigates, and it's the subject of all of his conversations with Jesus, is his claim to be a king. By the way, in another show of hypocrisy, these Jewish leaders wouldn't enter Pilate's residence. Pilate had to come out to them because they didn't want to be unclean for the Passover feast. Oh, these men are unclean already. They're hypocrites, is what they are. But Pilate comes out, and he interrogates Jesus for a little while. He asks Him about a king, and I don't have time to read, read John chapter 18. But Pilate comes to the conclusion very quickly, Jesus may claim to be a king, but He is no threat to Rome. At least not in Pilate's eyes. He's claiming that his kingdom is spiritual. It's not of this world. Jesus is claiming to be a king of truth. And as Pilate mocks, what is truth? He's exasperated, but he thinks Jesus is innocent. And so he declares Jesus to be innocent. But as he does so, Luke tells us that the Jewish leaders go into a frenzy. They're about to lose their chance to finally kill Jesus. So they just hurl accusation after accusation against Jesus. And during this time they say something about Jesus had started all this mess up in Galilee. Well, hearing that, Pilate thinks he may have an out. Herod is the Tetrarch of Galilee, and he's in town. In fact, he may actually be staying in the very same complex that Pilate is. And so he says, we'll send Jesus to Herod, because it's his jurisdiction after all. And so Jesus is sent off to Herod. Luke 23, verse 8 through 11 says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. This is perhaps one of the most disgusting scenes of the trials, and one of the most ironic. Herod was actually given the title by Rome as King of the Jews. And so what you have when Herod is hearing Jesus' case is a man by a foreign nation who has been appointed as king of the Jews interrogating Jesus who by right and lineage and legality actually was the king of the Jews. And more importantly, Jesus was and is the king of kings. And worse still, not only are the roles reversed from what they should be, Herod was not interested in truth or justice. He just had some morbid curiosity. He could care less what happens to this man. He wants to see if this miracle worker will perform a sign for him. But when his entertainment desires are done away with, he finds a new avenue of entertainment. And once again, Jesus is beaten. He's mocked before them. And then finally, when Pilate's guards have had their fun, they send him back to Pilate. All I can say is how terrifying it will be when those those roles are reversed and Herod stands on trial before Jesus is king. But again, let us take warning. While Herod may have sat on the throne, Jesus was the one true king. And on our hearts there is a throne likewise. And we make the choice of whether we are going to occupy that throne falsely as Herod did, or whether we will enshrine Jesus upon the throne of our heart and bow before Him in humble submission. And make no mistake about it, we too will one day stand before Jesus as our judge. Well, Jesus is sent back before Pilate. So Pilate now is at his wit's and he doesn't want to kill Jesus, so he seeks a compromise. First of all, He tries to offer just beating Jesus. He says, I will punish him and let him go. That's going to be a flogging that could possibly kill Jesus anyway. But that's not good enough for the Jews. They want him crucified. So Pilate tries another tactic. Customarily, he would release somebody, one of the prisoners of the Jews during Passover. And so he gives them a choice. He says, okay, you can either have Jesus or you can have Barabbas. You would think that the choice is obvious. They may be annoyed and envious of Jesus. But he's not Barabbas. He's not a a notorious robber and criminal and thug and murderer. But who do they ask for? They ask for Barabbas. The chief priests had outsmarted Pilate. They knew this was coming. They'd already convinced the crowds and the mobs to ask for Barabbas. And Pilate can't understand. So Pilate tries something else. He goes ahead and orders Jesus to be flogged. He turns him over to the Roman soldiers who are masters of torture and death. These are men who care very little for life or care for other people. They stripped him and they flogged him. I don't want to be too gruesome. I'll explain it very briefly. But that flog, that scourge, would have been some short whip and on the end of it would have been bits of metal or bone or or glass. They were literally designed to rip the flesh from the muscles so that when they were done, and by the way, the Romans didn't have a max amount that they beat people like the Jews did. It was up to however long it took the Roman soldiers arm to get tired usually. Usually. But by the end of it, the back of an individual wouldn't even be recognizable as human in most cases. I've read somewhere around 60% of individuals died from the flogging alone. And these soldiers do that to Jesus. But the soldiers of Rome aren't just good at physically beating people, they're good at every form of warfare, including the mental aspect. So they don't just torture him physically, they torture him mentally. He's been turned over as a claimed king of the Jews. And so what do they do? But they mock him as a false king. Well, a king needs a crown. So they find him a crown. They go get some thorns and they twist them together. And they crush those down on Jesus' head. The pain actually probably wasn't anything compared to what Jesus already felt. But it added to it. And the blood vessels would have all been torn open and his eyes would have been covered by blood. Then they take a purple robe that was probably wool and heavy and they throw that on Jesus' back. And you can try and imagine how that felt on a freshly opened back from a scourging. And they place a reed in His hand as a scepter. They've made a mock king out of Jesus. And then they come up to Him one by one and they kneel down before Him. And they say, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they get up and they spit on Him. And they beat Him some more. Now again, I hope that sight's gut-wrenching to you. I hope you get angry at that sight. I hope you get sad at that sight. I hope every uh, imaginable emotion comes to you when you think about these Roman soldiers treating Jesus that way. And then I want to ask you if it's any better when you or I pay false homage to Christ. These Roman soldiers, I believe, had no idea who Jesus was. They may have heard of him, seen him a bit. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They sure didn't believe he was a king, and they absolutely didn't believe he was the son of God. Yet we know those things and we claim those things. But do we really live for him? Do we really adore him? Do we really serve him day in and day out, or do we show up here on a Sunday morning and pay homage and say, "Hail, King of the Jews?" and then by our life go spit in his face the rest of the week. It's easy to get angry at the people that we see in these stories. Far too often, we may be just as guilty. Well, Pilate displays Jesus hoping that the sight will induce some pity and cool the hatred just a bit, and thus allow Jesus to be freed. But again, his plan fails. If you'll bear with me, let's just read John 19 for a while. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself a son of God. Finally, the truth comes out. Pilate's exasperated. He says, I want nothing to do with this. In fact, we're going to be told later that he tries to wash his hands. He says, you crucify him. Well, they can't. And so they, but they say, he needs to be because we have a law and he made himself the son of God. They, don't, they go far enough. They go too far, really. They don't just accuse him of blasphemy. They say, he made himself the son of God. Now, Pilate's observed a few things. And Pilate's a superstitious man to boot. And this scares him. And so he tries to find a way. He says, When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. One of the saddest things about Pilate, this man did something to save his political career that only lasted three more years, according to history. He was afraid when he heard Jesus might be the son of a god, but he was more afraid when he was threatened with being unfriendly to Caesar. He was going to let Jesus go until they said, If you don't do this, if you don't crucify this man, then you're not a friend of Caesar. He had a tenuous relationship with the Jews anyway. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. To save his own, after everything Pilate's done, much of it unfair, but at least seeing Jesus' innocence, trying to get Jesus off the hook, he crucifies Jesus to save his own skin. That's the man Pilate was. Just one more betrayal adding up. But in a defiant jab, Pilate displays Jesus after all this, and he says, he doesn't say, behold the man, he says, behold your king. He is going to rub it into the Jews as much as he can. And they say, he's not our king. He says, shall I crucify your king? And they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. I think it's probably at this time that Pilate sees there's nothing else to be done. And so he brings out a a basin of water and washes his hands to try and signify that this blood is not going to be on him. It is. But the Jewish people are fine with it. In fact, Matthew tells us that he says, His blood be on us and on our children. I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. This is the Jewish people. These are the chosen people of God. God, Jesus had watched over, delivered from Egypt, provided for in the wilderness sent prophets to, cared for, loved, rebuked to get them back on the right way. These are the people that are looking for the Messiah. And here He is before them, bloody, beaten, close to death already. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. They're not just rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God. They're willing to have the blood of this man on their hands and on their children's hands. The satanic fury is unbelievable. And with that, every betrayal had been performed and every idea of justice was mocked. Finally, Jesus is fully condemned. And the Bible says He was delivered to be crucified. When you think about the hours of Jesus leading up to His death, they could only be summed up in the word betrayal. He was betrayed by Judas, forsaken by the disciples, denied by Peter, falsely accused, unlawfully tried, and mocked and beaten by his countrymen, mocked by a pretend king, Herod, unjustly condemned as a political expedient for Pilate, and rejected by his own nation. Once more, where are we? I want to read very quickly. Line from the Chronological Life of Christ, a book by a man named Mark Moore, it says So Barabbas is released, Jesus is prepared for execution. We are horrified by the scene, repulsed by each player. Yet we strangely feel a part of the plot. Somehow we are there on the wrong side of justice. As we survey the hordes we have come to loathe, we realize that we are among them. Like the disciples, perhaps we have fled. Like the Jewish leaders, perhaps there are times we've played the hypocrite. Like Herod, perhaps we've presumed to be king when we ought to bow. Like Pilate, perhaps we have rejected the truth when it was right in front of us. Like the Roman soldiers, perhaps we have paid false homage to Jesus. Like the Jews, perhaps we have accepted Caesar, and worse, the prince of the power of the air. And like all, we are guilty. And because of our guilt, Jesus willingly silently, and lovingly went to the cross for us. The question before us is what side will we stay on? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then you are still standing with the crowd yelling crucify Him, but you don't have to. Many of those people that day would hear a gospel sermon within several weeks in which they would be rebuked sharply by Peter, that they had killed Jesus whom God had made both Lord and Christ. And although they had cried out, crucify Him, they would cry out instead that day, what must we do? And those that believed and obeyed the gospel were forgiven of their sins, even those sins, even the sins of betraying Jesus. And you can be too. Whatever sins are in your past, Jesus' blood that He shed freely, while He was betrayed, His blood flowed because He let it. And that blood can cleanse you. It can make you a child of God. So if you're here today and you believe in Christ, you're ready to repent of your sins and stop playing for the side of the devil. If you're ready to confess Christ as the Son of God, then you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins and begin faithfully serving Him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you're here today and you're a Christian, but you know that you've rebelled against God and you have turned back, How could you possibly turn back to that crowd? But sometimes we do. And if that's you, then make it right. Pray to God for forgiveness, or if you want to come forward and confess your faults so that we can pray with you and for you, we'd be happy to do so. If there be one that we can help, we invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.